in our look at Matthew's Gospel and title of today's message is Preaching Prophecy. It's kind of a play on words. I think you might get it. Some of you will get it later on. Preaching Prophecy. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for your word. And as Sam so clearly helped us understand this morning that your word is to be trusted fully. It is completely reliable. Uh, we can stake our existence on it, so we thank you for that. And Lord, help us to learn today from your word. As we sing often, um, speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Holy Spirit, please feed us now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the point I want you to get this morning is this. There is only one light of salvation for the entire world, Jesus Christ. There is only one light of salvation for the entire world, Jesus Christ. So when we last left Jesus, he had been tempted in the wilderness. Now, as the gospel writers uh, do, they select certain uh, parts of Jesus' life and they connect them together as they see fit. Many believe that the other gospels are based on Mark's gospel. Um, But they pick and choose where they want the stories to land. Now, John's gospel uh, has more information here than the other three. And so when we leave Jesus after he comes, after he goes through his temptations and the angels minister to him, that's like John 1, 19, and then you go all the way through John 4, 42. And so what we miss in the ministry of Jesus is his encounter with Nicodemus. That's a pretty big deal, isn't it? Jesus goes to the spiritual elite who is asking about the kingdom. And then where does he go after that? He goes to the woman at the well. He goes to what many would consider the least of society, a woman uh, who has had her challenges with relationships. And so Jesus has bounced back and forth between being there where John is baptizing, Nazareth, Galilee. He's kind of, he's kind of bounced around a little bit. And in Luke's gospel, prior to this, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in Nazareth. And he stands up in the synagogue and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah that he is the one who was going to set the captives free. And then he's uh, summarily, he's taken to a cliff. He's run out of town, and they threaten to throw him off the cliff because in a sense, when he says, today in your hearing, in your presence, this prophecy is fulfilled, the prophecy of the Messiah, they accuse him basically of blasphemy, and they take him up to a cliff, and he says, not today. It's not going to happen. He walks through the crowd, and he heads out of Nazareth to Galilee. And that's where we find Jesus in Galilee, Capernaum. So, verse 12, we're going to begin here. Chapter 4, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. And, and in Mark's Gospels, when time was fulfilled, this is on God's timeline. The Son is always on his Father's timeline. And and once John had, his ministry had, in a sense, his public ministry had ended, it was time for Jesus' public ministry to begin. It says he withdrew to Galilee. And this wasn't because he was running from Herod Antipas. No, he was going to Galilee because we're going to see this is the fulfillment of prophecy. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum. Uh, Capernaum literally means Caper, city of Nahum, the prophet Nahum, city of Nahum. He went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake area 
in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. We'll talk about that in just a minute. To fulfill what was said to the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, repent, the kingdom has come near. So as we begin to walk through this text, verse by verse, the first thing we see is the preparation. We see that at the beginning, and again, I've already said this, that the preparation was what we've seen so far in Matthew's gospel, right? Jesus has grown in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man. He has been declared the beloved Son of God at his baptism. He has gone out into the wilderness to be tested to prove that he truly is the Son of God. The forerunner has been taken off of his, out of his public ministry. It is the fullness of time. The preparation has occurred. Now, what's the place? We see this in verses 12 through 13. Well, the place is up around the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee, I think, when I preached through Mark, I mentioned this, is about the size of the lake of uh, the Lake St. Clair, close to us. It's not a very big lake. So Jesus goes and he, he's staying in Capernaum, which is on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. I think I've got a picture. There you go. Is it all washed out? Can you guys see that? You see Capernaum, I've got it in yellow there. The north side of the Sea of Galilee. And then you see Nazareth there, which is south of Capernaum. But it's interesting, when you read the text, it says when Jesus lives Nazareth, he leaves Nazareth, he goes, he goes down to Capernaum. Well, that's because Nazareth is higher in elevation than Capernaum is. And so Jesus really sets up in Capernaum. This is his, his base of ministry. And that note is made here that it is in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. Well, those are two sons of Jacob. When the children of Israel came across the Jordan into the promised land, Fury Joshua, there is allotment, there is a, pieces of land are given to each of the tribes. And the two pieces of land that are given to the two sons of Zebulun, two sons Zebulun and Naphtali, are right there around the Sea of Galilee. Well, Matthew mentions that because he is going to, as he has done, bring in a prophecy from the Old Testament to validate the ministry of the Messiah, further proving that he is, truly is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, that he is the rightful king, that he is the one that they've been waiting for for all of history. And so Matthew launches into the prophecy. We see this in verses 14 through 16. To fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun, Land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Now, the way of the sea was actually a, a commerce route that came straight down through Israel and then curved over to Africa. It was a very busy area. Because of where the Sea of Galilee was placed and because of this commerce route called the way of the sea, there were many, many, many Gentiles who lived in that area. Many, many Gentiles. So it was... Uh, Jerusalem was not a Gentile area. Jerusalem was this isolated city up in the mountains. You know, it's kind of a, you know, in our, in our area, in the south side of town, over by Oliver, if you've ever been over there, south side of town, 
It is a very highly concentrated Yemeni area. Very concentrated. It's kind of off by itself. And that's the way Jerusalem was, up in the mountains. But this was a very well-traveled area. Many, many Gentiles were there. And so in Isaiah's prophecy, and we're going to talk more about this in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9, we're told this about the, the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, the Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So, so why is Isaiah saying that they're living in darkness? Why is that area of, of Israel such a dark and desperate place? Well, if you go back in history to the ministry of Isaiah, as he was serving as the Lord's prophet, the king in Isaiah chapter 7 is a king named Ahaz. Ahaz was a king in the line of David. He was the king of of Judah, of the two southern tribes of Israel, Judah and Benjamin. Ahaz wasn't trusting the Lord. Ahaz was was a wicked, wicked king. And at the time of of the writing of Isaiah, Isaiah is told to go and confront King Ahaz. Why? Well, because King Ahaz wasn't trusting God. Assyria in the north was threatening to attack Israel. And and the king of Israel, and when I say Israel, there's the northern ten tribes, there's Israel, and there's Judah. It's kind of confusing. The northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, okay, had a king, Pekah. Okay, and he was aligning himself with a Gentile pagan king, Rezin, and they wanted Ahaz to join with them so that they could defeat the Assyrians. And so Isaiah comes to Ahaz and says, hey, look, no, you need to trust in God. And he gives this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7. Ahaz doesn't listen to God. Ahaz doesn't, doesn't trust in God. And what does he do? He doesn't ally himself, align himself with Pekah and Rezin. He allies himself with the Assyrians, which is certainly what God didn't want him to do. And so what we understand from the Old Testament, from King Ahaz in his wickedness, he was a king who worshipped foreign gods. In fact, he set up a statue of Molech in the temple area. Moloch was this god that at the foot of the god there was a fire and they would throw babies into the fire as a sacrifice to appease Moloch so that he would give them more crops, so that he would give them more children, so he'd give them fertile livestock, so that he would give them prosperity. Ahaz wasn't trusting in God, he was trusting the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was trusting in the god of the pagan nations. He was trusting in Moloch. Well, Assyria was only using Ahaz. They were using him for their own purposes. And in 722 AD, Tiglath-Peleser, I never say the names right. I can say them however I want, actually, because proper names, really, they don't know. So Tiglath-Peleser invades from the north. He invades into Judah, into, I'm sorry, the northern kingdom, Israel, and he begins to take the ten tribes off into captivity up into Assyria. And these ten tribes, of the ten tribes, the first two uh, groups of people to go were those living in Zebulun and Naphtali. When the Assyrians came in and took the Israelites from Zebulun and Naphtali into captivity, they never came back. 
In fact, none of the ten tribes of Israel came back. That's why they're called the lost tribes of Israel. They're taken into captivity, and they never return. And so Isaiah, when he is writing, he's prophesying what's going to happen. A great darkness is going to overcome the land. That darkness is the invasion of the Assyrians. But undergirding that darkness is a rejection of the God of the Bible. It's a rejection of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a rejection of God's truth. Instead of going to God's word to get truth and understanding, they went to spiritists and mediums, those who are practicing necromancy, those who are offering up their infants as sacrifices to Moloch. The darkness in the land was because they had turned from the truth of God. And a result of that was the invasion of the Assyrians. And so prior to the prophecy that we look at in Matthew, okay, Matthew draws his prophecy from Isaiah, and prior to the quotation that Matthew gives, we read this. Nevertheless, there will be... I'm sorry, let me get over here a little bit more. The people... No, that's not what I want either. I don't have the text up here, I don't think. I left the slide out. Okay. So prior to that, in Isaiah chapter 8, leading into Isaiah chapter 9, a couple of my slides disappeared, Isaiah is confronting, he's confronting the, the, the people in, in Zebulun and Naphtali. He's confronting Ahaz. He's confronting the Israelites. He's saying, look, you have turned to those who are trusting in the word of dead people. You're not trusting in the living word of God. He says there's darkness and gloom, but then he gives hope, as Isaiah always does. He says, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled those in the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. He humbled them by taking them into captivity. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by way of the sea, by the way of Jordan. Well, how is he going to honor them? How is he going to bless them? These people who have turned away from the living God and from his truth. He goes on to say, the people in walking in darkness, they've seen a great light. And those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. So this prophecy is made to, through Isaiah, to Judah, to the northern tribes. Darkness is in the land but light is going to come. You've been taken into captivity. Life couldn't get any worse, but I'm sending you hope. I'm sending you light. Well, as you know, in biblical history, 400 years of silence pass not long after the prophecy of Isaiah. Right? You have Isaiah, you have Jeremiah, you have Ezekiel, okay? And then the last of the prophets, Malachi, speaks, and there is 400 years of silence. We've talked about this. And darkness again covers the land. Now, as you consider the, the nation of Israel as they come out of captivity during that period of silence, they didn't go back to the idolatry of Molech. That's not, that's not what they did. Matter of fact, they were very careful not to go into that kind of idolatry. But what they did do is they set up this idolatry of, of traditionalism, uh, of, of rituals, of, of doing things. I'm going to do this, this, and this. I'm going to obey these rules. You have to obey these rules if you want to be right with God. It, it was... Obedience to commands that was your righteousness. 
They had rejected the spirit of God's word. And so out of that darkness, though, God speaks again. He speaks into the darkness. And we read in Isaiah chapter 9, for to us a child is born, right? If you continue that prophecy, for us, to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Well, who is this one who is going to be the great light that would dawn? This one who is the Prince of Peace. It's Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And that's Matthew's point as he gives us this prophecy. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. Who is that great light? That great light is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So the fulfillment of the prophecy as Matthew gives to us from Isaiah chapter 9 is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And he came preaching a message And that message was simple. It was very clear. It was a message of repentance. And that is the preaching. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. There's a consistent message here, right? John the Baptist came and his message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus Christ, as after John the Baptist goes off the scene, begins to preach a message. What is it? Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. I've already explained to you that the kingdom of heaven coming near is the fact that the king is in their presence. Wherever Jesus the king is, there also is the kingdom. He came to offer them a literal kingdom. The kingdom you read about in Isaiah's prophecy. And we'll talk more about that kingdom as we proceed through Matthew's gospel. But his message was clear. It was a message of repentance. We might say, well, if a person wants to be saved, don't they need to know a little bit more then just repent. When I think of repent, I think of you need to stop sinning and turn away from that sin and start doing what God wants you to do or you're going to burn in hell. When I, when I hear of repent, that's what I think about. We used to say it, turn or burn, right? So there's got to be more to that message than just repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. Well, as I've said before, faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. You don't get one without the other. Repentance begins in the heart and the mind as you receive the message of Jesus Christ, as you understand that God is holy, he is righteous, he is just, as you understand that your sin has separated you from God, as you understand there is nothing you can do to take care of that separation. As you understand the fact that Jesus Christ came to draw you near to God through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Yes, you need to understand all those facts. But as your mind and heart embrace that, you begin to say, I I have sinned against you, God. And you turn from that sin. When God calls us to repentance, he's not just saying, don't do this, don't do that, stop this, stop that. He's saying, look, I have a much better plan for you. I have a plan of beauty. I have a plan of holiness. I want so badly for you to have fullness of life. Turn from that life that is leading you into death, that's leading you into darkness. Understand and believe the truth that I'm sending you through my son, Jesus Christ. Turn from that, and I will give you abundant life. I will transform you into a holy person, a beautiful person, and you will have purpose in your life. God calls us 
to repent from, from actions that lead to death and turn to a life of joy. The call to repentance is the call to holiness and beauty. I gave you this quote before. The demands for repentance and faith run parallel. One day I'm going to do a message. I'm just going to show you all the passages in the New Testament where repentance and faith are synonymous. The demands for repentance and faith run parallel. Genuine repentance prepares the heart for the true gospel. Faith in the gospel makes the repentance evangelical. Right? And I said before, when you repent, believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, your life change, changes and your life screams change. And people say, wow, they've changed. How did you change? Well, let me tell you. Repentance without faith leads to despair. Right? If you're just changing your activities and you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ and you're changing your activities so that you can be right with God, guess what? You're always going to fail. You're always going to have to change your activities and you're going to be in despair. I've said that before. And then we, he goes on to say, faith without repentance from sin is presumption, right? Oh God, I believe what you say about Jesus Christ. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. I believe he rose from the dead. But you know what, I, I'm not, I, I, I still want to do this, and I still, and I know it's contrary to your word, I, I know that, that, but you know, you'll understand God, you'll understand if I do that, because you're a God of grace, and, and, and it becomes presumption, it becomes cheap grace. So Jesus came preaching a message of repentance, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, repent, believe in me as the Messiah. Well, as we consider this call to repentance in a dark world that has turned from the truth, I've got two points to ponder this morning. So you're thinking, wow, it's early, you're turning to this. Well, this first one is a little bit longer, okay? But what I want you to understand here is this, that in Isaiah's day, in the day of Ahaz, Right? The Israelites had turned from the truth of God. They were blinded to that truth. They were insensitive to that truth. And they rejected the God of glory for idols made from human hands. In Jesus' day, they had embraced, embraced rule-keeping as a means of being right with God, rejecting the faith that God demanded. And in our day, we reject truth outside of ourselves, embrace truth within ourselves, believing that we know the best way of salvation. And so, and so as, I, as I look at this concept of this darkness that Isaiah talks about, right? Isaiah says, darkness has filled the land. There's just complete and utter darkness. He, he's referring to the fact that there's no truth. And where there is truth, it's being rejected. So the first point is this, is that darkness fills the world and blinds humanity to the truth of Jesus Christ. Again, in Isaiah's prophecy, in Isaiah 9, that Matthew quotes, darkness is in the land. Darkness is in the land. And so we see throughout Scripture, there's this contrast between dark and light. Now, I'm not talking about the yin and the yang, right? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about two separate but equal forces that somehow work together. There's some bad in the good and good in the bad that somehow makes everything work out. That's not what I'm talking about here. 
I'm talking about the contrast in the Scriptures between darkness and light. Right? In the Scriptures, darkness is the absence of light. It's the absence of truth. It's the, abs- it's the dominion of Satan. It's evil. It's death. It's separation from God. If you do a search of a Bible dictionary, this is what you're going to find. Darkness is the absence of truth. The denial of truth. Light is the essence of God. It's the absence of darkness. It's truth. It's goodness. It's life. It's the presence of God. And so as we consider light, we consider God because God is the source of all truth, right? Truth is that which corresponds with reality. God is the ultimate reality. He determines what truth is, and God is truth. He is light. 1 John 1, 5, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light. In him is no darkness at all, right? You see the great contrast between light and darkness, truth and lies, or truth and deception, or truth and that which is not reality. In Isaiah's day, there was darkness. When Jesus Christ was born into the world, there was darkness. The world that we live in now is filled with what? Darkness. Who is the God of this world? Right. Satan is the God of this world. So we see that God is light. He is truth. In him is no untruth. But there is a dominion of darkness in the world. Paul tells us in his letter to the church of Colossae, there is a dominion of darkness that's controlled by the God of this world. And the fact of the matter is, and John doesn't mince any words, he says, people love darkness because their deeds were evil. When I share the gospel with people, the overwhelming sense that I get, you know, when, it, when you explain the gospel and you think you've done it the best way you can, if you pray for this person, in the final analysis, besides the fact that they're blinded to the truth, and we'll talk about that in a minute, is that people like sin. People like to sin. People don't want to let go of their sin. They would rather sin than obey God. You're calling me to follow Jesus Christ, Jay. You're calling me to say no to this life that I know. And I'm not ready to do that. I don't want to give up X. I don't want to give up the relationship. I don't want to give up my, whatever, my drink. I don't want to give up this or that. I'd rather keep that than embrace the love of God and all that he has for you in a full life. Because they're blinded. People love the darkness because their deeds are evil. But praise God, the light shines into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You know, as I was thinking through um, light and darkness and how we relate to people in a sense of which, you know, how we share the gospel with people, I was thinking about um, the way the, the world views God, religion, um, spiritual things, if you will, okay? And so I'm going to give you two examples here as we work through this light-darkness concept. And so I have Sid and Sam. Sid and Sam. And as you interact with people in the world, um, they have the same questions. I, I don't care who you talk to, where they're from, what language they speak, what they eat for breakfast, they're going to have the same internal questions. You know, how did we, how did we get here? How, how did this all come to be, right? 
how did we get cell phones? What happened? Like, so, so how did we get here? And, and, and then what happened to the world, right? What, what happened? Why are things so bad? And how can things change? How can we make things better? Are things going to stay this way? And, and what happens in the end? Right? Would you agree that those are common questions that people have? Would you agree? Everybody has these questions, no matter where they're from or what language they speak. It's, we call this a presupposition. Well, some other presuppositions that I, that I go through that are related to this, okay, is that everybody understands that God is creator. There's not one person in the world who, who intuitively thinks things just popped up out of nothing. And I'll get to that in a second, because you're going to say, oh, there's a lot of people who believe in evolution. That's, that's what's taught today, right? Ever since the scope trial, that's what we teach is evolution. Everybody knows that there's right and wrong. Every single person knows right from wrong. No matter what culture you go into, it's wrong for a man to steal another, man, another man's wife. It's wrong for me to steal. It's wrong for me to murder. Right? Because God has said it's wrong. And it's written on the heart of every man. And because people know right from wrong, they know they're going to be judged. There's a judgment coming, as Paul says, my gospel declares. And people we know believe in eternity. Solomon says eternity is placed in the heart of man. And so these questions are there for everybody. This basic understanding is there for everybody. There is, if you will, this light that exists in every person, these four truths. There is some light because we're all created in the image of God, there is this light that is there. And the world, this dark world, is trying to extinguish this light. This world is trying to make you know, humanity insensitive to this light that God has placed within every human. And Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 1. Paul is, Paul is trying to, to, he's given an apologetic here, he's trying to say this is why Everybody deserves to be condemned and punished, and this is why everybody needs the only Savior, Jesus Christ, for salvation. He's, he's laying the foundation for his argument here. And he says, the wrath of God, yes, God is a God of love, but he's a God of wrath. The God of wrath, say, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people, what? Who suppress the truth by their wickedness, Right? People suppress these truths. It's there. They, receive, they suppress it. And they, they suppress it so much they become insensitive to it. They become callous to it. That's what happened in Ahaz's day, in Isaiah's day. That's what happened when Jesus Christ was born. And that's what happens now in our world. And so as you think through this, and you think about sharing the gospel with people, you can begin with confidence in these truths. I'm just telling you. You can have great confidence in that. But they suppress those truths. And Paul goes on and says, Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. Right? You see that light that they've turned their back to? That light? They, they, God's made it plain. Those truths are plain to them. And the place that it's most clear, and Satan is so, so slick, Right? If you want to capture an entire generation of young people and extinguish this light that's within them, if you want to make them insensitive to that internal light, what do you do? You teach them that they evolved out of a primordial soup. You teach them, teach them that evolution is the truth, that there is no creation. 
But look at this next part of this passage. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. Creation declares the glory of God. Creation screams the existence of God. You have to convince an infant to the opposite. You have to convince a child to the opposite. There there is not a rational being who intuitively thinks that things just popped out of nothing. We learned that earlier today with Sam. And he says, people are without excuse. And in Ahaz's day, in Isaiah's day, when they were carried off to captivity, they were without excuse. The prophets had come to them, prophet after prophet. God, God says, I've created you. I love you. You're my people. I gave birth to you as a nation. If you would just obey my commands. And they rejected him again and again. They were without excuse. Well, he continues. For although they knew God, intuitively they knew God, that truth, that that spark of light was there. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but in their thinking they became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And guess what? They began to exchange the worship of the true and living God for the worship of the creation. Does that not sound like the world that we live in? The very same people who will who will tie themselves to a tree so that it won't be cut down, are the very same people that would say, no, I have a right to destroy that baby inside of me. You see how truth is so distorted. The light is being so extinguished. And so they became foolish and their foolish hearts, sorry, their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were what? Darkened. And there we have that concept of light and dark again. Light and darkness. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the church at Ephesus says this, the futility of their thinking, they were darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Right? So you have this concept of their thinking became futile. Why? Because they turned from the truth of God to the truth within them, to the truth of other people who are finding truth within them, who are all watching social media, Right? And so in the futility of their thinking, they became darkened in their hearts. And they became hardened to the truth that God is creator, that he's put right and wrong in a person's heart, that there is judgment, that there is eternity. Paul continues, he says, they've lost all sensitivity. When people turn from the truth of God to subjective truth, They turn away from what? Living as God has prescribed. And they indulge in every kind of greed and impurity. And John says this. John passes a verdict on this. He says, this is the verdict, that light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light. Remember I said people love sin? Because their deeds are evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light. It will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. So, so people, they, they reject the light, right? They, they suppress the truth of God. They love their evil deeds. It's even worse than that. That darkness is so dark because the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers that they can't see. 
So when we look out at the world and we see what's going on around us, and you see how people act and behave, why are they acting that way? Because they've rejected the truth of God's word. They've become hardened to God's truth. They've become insensitive to God's truth. And as such, they've chosen evil over righteousness. And they're bearing the fruit of that, the evil deeds. And Satan has blinded them. This should give you compassion for those around you who don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's like, we want to hold them to a standard, don't we? We're so mad at the evil deeds of people. Like, I get so mad at people when I'm, when I'm driving or on my street, right? So right, I told you this, guys. Right now, my street is one way going east. But Kenneth is blocked off going one way going west. And so what do people do? They drive up the wrong way up my street, and they do it almost every day. Four times in the past month, I have walked out right in the middle of the road and gone like this. No, you must stop. Like stood in front of the car. Because it just boggles my mind that somebody would be so selfish that the whole world revolves around them and and they're going to do what they want to do. And I became so convicted over the last time. I was like, I shouldn't expect anything else out of them. I mean, that's living out their selfish behavior. The God of this age has blinded them. And so it seems hopeless. And into that kind of world, right, into the darkness that we call this world, Jesus Christ says, look, I want you to be salt and light. I want you to take the good news of salvation to the nations. I want you to call the world to repentance. That sounds a little bit overwhelming, doesn't it? But God's word is true. And we have to cling to the fact that we have to have faith. We have to have faith in the word of God. That if God calls us to take the message of the gospel to the nations, we have to do it regardless of how dark the world is. Because we dispel darkness as we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fact of the matter is, is that when we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, we're only a part of what God is doing. God is using that faithful proclamation, but he is the one who has to transform minds. He's the one who has to take the blinders off. Right? Paul understood this as he was writing to the church at Corinth. Paul was talking about the, the ministry of the spirit that he'd been given. And Paul understood the overwhelming task that he had in front of him. He says, what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, right? That one that that was the light that dawned on the darkness of the world. That one prophesied by Isaiah in AD 720 BC. We preach Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Jesus Christ. Somehow we think when we're trying to reach out into the dark world that somehow, you know, and we actually think this, I really wasn't as bad as those people are. I wasn't as blind as those people are. You know, those Muslims, they're just like, there's really blind people and there's really, really blind people. And the Muslims are the really, really blind people. I have that kind of mindset sometimes. I do. Friends, we're all equally blind. 
We're all equally enshrouded in the darkness of death. That darkness which is absent of truth of God. None of us, none of us can remove the blinders off the eyes of those who need to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only God who said, let there be light. In that creative moment who spoke everything into existence, ex nihilo, only he can open up a person's heart to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. That knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Jesus Christ. What we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus Christ says, I am the light of the world. Friends, you're not the light of the world. No matter how good your deeds are, you're not the light of the world. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And that's what we want for the nations. That's what Jesus Christ wanted when he came into the world. That's what Matthew wants as he writes this gospel. He's thinking back to Isaiah. There was darkness in the land. They had rejected the truth. They were taken off into captivity. No hope. But oh yeah, in Isaiah, it also says, a light has dawned. That light is Jesus Christ. He is the light of life. Just as God brought those people out of captivity, he can bring an unbelieving, hating world out of the captivity from Satan and into life. Because Jesus Christ is the light of life. And so we have the same ministry that the Apostle Paul has. Right? We're called to fulfill the Great Commission. Paul received this from Jesus Christ. He says, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles, meaning Paul is going to be spared from those who want to kill him. And Jesus says this to Paul. He says, I am sending you to them, what? To open their eyes and turn them from the darkness to the light. Yeah, we are the light of the world. We need to be salt and light. But friends, unless you speak about the light of the world, nobody's eyes are going to be open. Nobody is going to be set free from the captivity of darkness. Paul was sent, we're sent, to open the eyes of those who are blind, to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are being sanctified by faith in me. So as Jesus opens up his ministry, Matthew reminds us that Jesus Christ is that light that darned into a dark world. Friends, you and I, as we've been given new life in Jesus Christ, are light into a dark world. We can't save anybody. Only God can say, let there be light. But guess what? He's not going to say, let there be light in the absence of you proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to somebody. You understand? You've been called, just like Paul, to spread light into the darkness. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for um, this time in your word. Father, I thank you that you are light. Jesus Christ is the light of the world, that we are children of the light. Father, I thank you that you've given us the gospel message of light. Father, I thank you that you're the one who says, let there be light in the, in the hearts and the minds of unbelievers. 
Father, I pray that you would help us to be faithful to that task that you've given us to proclaim to the nations repentance for the kingdom of heaven is near. Father, there may be somebody here this morning who knows they're in darkness and that they need the light of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would work in their heart and bring them to that point of repentance. Father, some of us here know that we haven't been faithful bearers of the light into a dark world. I pray that your spirit would stir up within us a compassion for the lost, that we would see the lost world as they are, that they are blinded, that they are in utter darkness, and that we would have compassion and we would speak the love of God into their life through the gospel of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.